Are you looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to VeteranMentalHealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to VeteranMentalHealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes. Welcome to episode 139 of the Headspace and Timing podcast. Today, I have a conversation with veteran, author, and expert on the psychological impact of combat and military service, Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman. We talk about Colonel Grossman's goal to help educate the public and service members and first responders about the psychology of stressful situations. In a nutshell, PTSD is every time you remember it, you relive it. You talk about it and you go on that roller coaster ride again. Your heart rate goes up, your, your blood pressure goes up, you start perspiring. What we want to do, the path to healing, is to remember it without reliving it. How do, how do we stop that physiological arousal? And for decades, I used breathing. I interviewed World War II vets and Vietnam vets starting in 1988, and they started becoming emotional and make them stop and breathe. Today, we put a bottle of water in front of them. And taking a swig of water is a natural way to get people to breathe. But it also it, it sends, sends a body a powerful rest and digest message. We're safe. We have time for a drink of water. Welcome to the Headspace and Timing Podcast, a show dedicated to breaking down the stereotypes around veteran mental health. My name is Dwayne France, and I'm a retired Army non-commissioned officer and a combat veteran of both Iraq and Afghanistan. After retiring from the Army, I took on a new mission as a clinical mental health counselor for my fellow service members. If you served in any branch of the military, then you're familiar with the M2 machine gun, the 50 cal. It's one of the most effective weapons in the military's arsenal. If the weapon's headspace and timing wasn't set correctly, however, it was just a useless chunk of metal. Veterans can be rendered inoperable if their headspace and timing's not set correctly either. That's my goal with this show, to change the way that we think and talk about veteran mental health and reduce the stigma against seeking support. Each week, we'll talk with mental health professionals, veterans, and those who support service members, veterans, and their families. We're going to have real and honest conversations about a topic that most just don't like to talk about, veteran mental health. Let's jump into this week's conversation. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Headspace and Timing Podcast. Once again, and as always, we really appreciate you taking the time to listen and learn more about veteran mental health. Uh, you know, here on the Headspace and Timing Podcast and the blog, our goal is to change the way that we think and talk about veteran mental health. And a lot of that is understanding uh, what it is and how we respond to what service members went through in combat. Um, and, uh, and I have a really great guest on the show today. Um, somebody that I've been, I've been following his work for many, many years, even before I became a mental health professional. Uh, and that's Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman. Dave, welcome to the show. Dwayne, it's an honor to be here. You know, uh, uh, I, I've been on 60 Minutes and 20 and 20 and done all the, you know, all the TV things, and, and they're terribly frustrating. It's a 15-minute blip and you're done. Uh, I really like these podcasts. I, I think we get a chance to dig in deep. I commend you, and most of all, I commend your audience for being people who are looking for a greater depth of information in this field. 
and I, I'm 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 honored to to be here today and uh, excited about the info we can pass on. I'm I'm a retired Army Lieutenant Colonel, a West Point Psych Professor, prior, prior service Buck Sergeant, uh, OCS grad, uh, a uh, and I wrote a, a couple of books, uh, in particular on killing, and most important of all for our audience is on combat. Uh, on combat's been uh, uh, translated about five languages. Uh, Closing on about a quarter of a million copies sold, Marine Corps Commandant's Required Reading, Army and Air Force Recommended Reading, uh, issued in the DEA Academy, issued in the Marshals Academy. And if it's okay with you, let, let's just dive in and I'll give you what I call the demographics, the one over the world on our veterans. Yeah, and, absolutely. And the, what, what I teach is that what, a balancing act, no pity party, no macho man. And Hollywood's given us two goofy myths. And the first goofy myth is what I call the pity party. And the, 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 the tormented, haunted veteran comes home from the war scarred for life. There, there are people like that. But it, the thing we need to understand is they're really the minority. And the vast majority made stronger by combat. You know, we've all seen Saving Private Ryan. We saw what the World War II vets lived with. Not for a one-year rotation, year after year, without end in sight, the World War II vets faced things we can't imagine. And they came home and they were the greatest generation. And a new greatest generation rising up. We don't mess them up. Nietzsche said, what doesn't kill us only makes us stronger. And that's the name of a book I always commend about audience attention, What Doesn't Kill Us, the new science of post-traumatic growth. Really far more important than post-traumatic stress is, is this dynamic of post-traumatic growth. And Nietzsche flat stole that from the Bible. 2,000 years before Nietzsche, Romans chapter 5. The Bible says we glory in tribulation. For tribulation work of patience, patience, experience, experience, hope. And hope maketh not ashamed. Romans chapter 5, 2,000 years for Nietzsche saying the same thing. The idea of being stronger for the bad things in life is not a new idea. The pity party, waving the victim card, that's a new idea. And if you think combat will destroy you, then you're halfway home to being destroyed. And there are so many goofy myths about our veterans. And I, and I, I want to confront a couple of them. Probably you and all of our listeners have heard that 22 veterans a day take their life. But you and I know, of that 22, only one or two are from the current war. The word veteran means everybody who served in the armed forces. In the 50s and the 60s, they drafted everybody. We got a, uh, we got a, uh, a Gallup poll that tells us 24% of all adult American males are veterans. And most of them are 90, 80, and 70-year-old men. So when we say 22 veterans, they take their life. You know, in the 50s, they drafted everybody. Elvis Presley was drafted. Elvis was a veteran. The word veteran means anybody served in the armed forces. So 22 veterans, they take their life. And there is an agenda out there to make people think it's all from the current war, that they're all suicidal. And one, one suicide is too many. And this is an issue we need to talk about. But the reality is that... Uh, 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 most of those suicides are, are 80, 70, 90 year old men and, and, uh, and suicide among our elderly is certain, certainly a totally different and worthy topic. But the, the other thing that you hear about is that all of our veterans are, are, are homicidal. And a, a New York Times piece based on a, on a uh, NPR piece, over 100 veterans have come home and committed war, committed murder. 100 veterans for this war come home and committed murder. Well, We've had 3 million Americans in this war, and the murder rate for citizens 18 to 25 is 25 per 100,000 per year. So out of any million Americans in that general age group, there should be 250 murders a year. 3 million veterans in that age group should have given us 750 murders last year alone. 
what, what, what they proved, 100 veterans have committed murder, what they proved, and it's a fact, the veteran is far less likely to commit a violent crime than a non-veteran. Here people say, oh, well, 8% of our prison population is veterans, but 24% of adult American males are veterans. You see, you see the, the misrepresentation. Almost one out of 10 of our prison population is veterans, but almost one out of four of our adult male population is veterans. And, and again, one is too many, and every one of them is a tragedy, and we want to be there for them. But maybe the, the worst thing of all is that they're all, they all have PTSD. And, uh, and so, you, you, you know, what, what race are veterans have PTSD? The senator from California says all veterans are insane, never be trusted. U.S. senator, all veterans are crazy. She must know what she's talking about. No, she doesn't. Not at all. So here, it used to be had to dig for it. We got a, a go to the VA website, public health, PTSD in Iraq and Afghanistan. And what we find out is that 15.7% uh, of the troops deployed to Iraq and Afghanistan have PTSD. Call it 16%. Folks, 11% uh, uh, of the ones who didn't deploy have PTSD. About 5% contracted PTSD. The British studied their troops in Afghanistan, 5%. The Dutch studied their troops in Afghanistan, 5%. Even when you focus your study specifically on the ones who were in combat, you seldom come up with a number much higher than about 8%. And, and you know, a, a 5% of 3 million people in this war is a lot of people. 16% uh, of 3 million people is half a million people. They need our help. But I keep running to veterans who think there's something wrong with them because there's nothing wrong with them. So we've got to realize the vast majority do not have PTSD. And this idea that they're all homicidal, suicidal, PTSD-riddled nutcases, it's, 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 it's just not true. And, and it's part of kind of a uh, anti-war uh, campaign The Vietnam veteran really was spit on and attacked. They were called baby killers. They were... The, the way our nation treated the returning Vietnam veterans is one of the great tragedies of, of, of our nation's history. Uh, these veterans today, they, they still oppose the war. They still are trying to undermine the war. But now, instead of being villains, they're victims. They're homicidal, suicidal, PTSD-riddled nutcases who've been destroyed by the war when the truth is just the opposite. They're our nation's best and finest. Nobody is grafted in this war. Everybody within four years of the war, there's nobody left to enlist before the war and got stuck with the war. The last time we fought a war with 100% wartime volunteers was the American Revolution. Starting in 1812, we always had people enlist before the war got stuck with the war. Uh, and we, for the longer, we always had the draft. This is the first war since the American Revolution we have fought with 100% wartime volunteers, people who raised their right hand to go to war. And these young men and women are absolutely magnificent. And, uh, and this smear that they're homicidal, suicidal, PTSD-riddled nutcases should, should enrage us. But the other half of the equation, no pity party, no macho man. If there is a problem, deal with it and have faith that help can help. The greatest lie out there and how they get away with it, seen it over and over again, PTSD is the intreatable disease. Here's, you know, here's a, the cover of Newsweek magazine. Uh, breaking through radical therapy for treating the untreatable victims of PTSD. There is no such thing. And online, they went and edited that. They, they, they caught heck, and they went back and edited that out. But the, the version that's in the, you know, in, in Google Images, when you, when you pull up the cover of Newsweek magazine, says untreatable victims of PTSD. Now, why would any mental health professional have told Newsweek magazine that PTSD is untreatable? And why would they believe that? 
it comes back to this kind of anti-war mantra that they, they're all destroyed and they'll never recover and the price of war is too high and the price of war is high. But we need to have a realistic assessment of what's happened here. And the thing to understand is that we're darn good at treating PTSD. I present at national and international psych conferences. I have every flavor is shrinking the audience by the hundreds. I ask them, you know, how many people in this room personally know of cases where PTSD has been treated and recovered fully? <laughs> Virtually every hand's up. Everybody the hand up, poking a finger in the eye, are the person who says PTSD is untreatable. So why, in the face of hundreds of thousands of cases, we treated and recovered fully? Why, in the face of ever-advancing medical science, why, in the face of the indomitable human spirit, why would any mental health professional say PTSD is for life? Two reasons. Number one, politics. They're all destroyed and they never recover and the price was high. Yeah, we get it. Number two is job security. If I cure you in two months, I'm out of the job. If I hook you to a lifetime of therapy. That maybe, maybe with the lifetime of therapy, we can adapt. No, we are increasingly convinced if we get the right treatment and you want to recover, almost anybody recover fully from PTSD, be stronger with the experience. I, uh, I trained a major SWAT team. During the break, they came up and said, hey, Colonel, I said, uh, the doc psyched this guy off the team. Now doc says he's okay. Can we trust him? Yes, you can trust him. He's stronger for the experience. He's got a piece of paper says he's sane. You got one of those? And so I always kind of wrap up this session with uh, Marcus Luttrell. Uh, Marcus Luttrell, lone survivor, naval SEAL, uh, entire team wiped out, only survivor, captured, tortured. And uh, Marcus Luttrell has a podcast. I had the arm be in his podcast a while back. And I got his permission to talk about him. Across all these years, I couldn't talk about it. Now I can. Uh, I, was, I trained Marcus Luttrell's unit before and after that incident. And I told people that you've got to think about post-traumatic stress, like being overweight. And post-traumatic stress disorder is obese. We all know the difference between overweight and obese. A lot of people have a few extra pounds, but it's not debilitating. So uh, post-traumatic stress disorder is obese. And Marcus Utrell's doc told me he came back from that incident and he was 500 pounds PTSD, totally debilitated. A year later, he was 50 pounds PTSD. He wanted to deploy, he came to this unit and he did and it was a good thing. And I told him at the time, look how far you've come in just the last year. Have confidence you can come farther. Anytime you can tell anybody to look at the progress you've made so far, any progress at all. You tell them, look, if you've made this much progress and you have confidence you can make more. Today, Marcus Luttrell tells us he is 100% post-traumatic stress-free and stronger for the experience. It wasn't easy. It took years. But if that man can come out the other end completely free, anyone can. And these uh, these numbers that, that I'm giving you here, about 5%, uh, they go up a little bit when it comes time to get out. There, there are people tell me the VA says, you have this, have this, have that. Just let us know. We get disability for PTSD. And, and that's kind of open-handed and generous of them to try to make sure we don't miss anybody. But maybe it can make the numbers bump up a little bit. And I tell people no amount of money is worth a lifetime of mental illness. Uh, if, if you knew you had cancer, you'd turn the internet inside out to find the, the, the medical breakthrough, give your life back. If you have PTSD, you, you turn the world upside down until you find the person who's going to give your life back. And no amount of disability, no amount of money is worth a lifetime of mental illness. 
And so that's kind of the, the, the demographic one of the world. What I'd like to do is, uh, is we'll, we'll talk in a few minutes about, uh, about how the body responds to the actual traumatic event and then uh, how afterwards that can become re-experience in the event, which is not PTSD, but can become PTSD. I'll give you some case studies, examples to make that come alive. But is that all making sense so far? Does that fit in with what you know? Yeah, no, it absolutely does. Both my experience um, as a, a veteran and a combat veteran, but also my, my role as a clinician and, and the work that I've done with the veterans um, uh, so far. You know, the idea of, you know, um, I talk about the villain, the victim, and the hero, right? And no veteran is any one of those things. And we may all have pieces of those, but those are sort of these stereotypes that aren't helpful. Um, you're right. I, I uh, was in the Army for 22 years, three combat, five overall deployments. I have successfully refrained from committing cold-blooded murder since I retired, right? And somehow I have restrained myself from uh, from doing that. Um, and, and, I, and, and I put together a book. The, the title of my book is Combat Vet Don't Mean Crazy, right? It, just because you're a combat vet doesn't mean you're crazy. Something interesting that you said there was um, the idea of the, the Vietnam veterans were vilified um, but people, you know, spit on them. Actually, I had Carl Marlantis on the, the podcast and, and he talks about that was one of the, he actually experienced that when he was on a train leaving from DC, he got spit on, on the train. And he's like, people tell me that's not true, but I, I experienced that. Um, but now perhaps veterans are taught to beat themselves up. They're not getting spit on externally. They're yes. being taught to spit oh. on themselves. Oh, that is just so deep and profound. And I love, I love, you know, the villain, the victim. I talk about that in the hero. And most of them are heroes. They tried to paint the Vietnam veteran as a, as a villain. They paint these guys as victims. But I think in large, you know, there's some of all of that in all of us. But it, it, it is what, what takes up the majority is, is, is kind of who you are. And I think these are true heroes. They've, they've served our nation well. Of course, I'm biased. I got a son with nine combat tours, and uh, and they're rocking on. And you know, they they made us proud. My war was a cold war. I enlisted in '74, and I got out in '98. Uh, the wall had just come down, and the Soviet Union had finally collapsed. And uh, you know, the, my whole career, Grenada was a day, Panama was a day, Gulf One was four days. If you made them all, and I didn't, they wouldn't add it up to a week. These kids today see more in in, in a week than we. My, my generation would have seen in a, in, a, in, a, in a whole career. And I just want to tell you from, from that greater generation that we are so incredibly proud of you guys. And we thank you for what you've done. Man in the ramparts for 17 years, brave and well. And, and I appreciate that. And, I, and, and definitely on, on behalf of, um, you know, speaking on, on half of all veterans, but this idea of the, the, the three generational, you had the Vietnam generation, you had that transition generation with Cold War veterans, um, and then the veterans. Now, you mentioned it earlier. It's also something that I've said is we do have the potential to be the greatest generation if we get out of our own way. This is that pity party thing that you were talking about. But the next combat veteran in the White House is going to be from this generation. The next Supreme yes. Court justice who is a veteran is going to be from this generation, right? We're going to have this gap. Um, but this idea behind, um, you know, World War II produced presidents and Nobel laureates and stuff like that, or like my grandfathers, they came back and became tailors and mechanics and, and took care of their families. So they had the impact in the large way and the small way. But I think that's something that a lot of veterans are missing. I'm seeing this divide, not in the military civilian, but in the veteran community, 
you know, well-adjusting high-performing veterans and veterans that are sort of accepting this idea of I'm the victim or, or I'm broken, right? Buying into that, I'm broken. And, you know, one of the wild cards in this whole equation is TBI, traumatic brain injury. You know, in, in World War I, they called it shell shock. And they said it's all about physical concussion and damage to the brain. In World War II, they said, no, no, it's combat fatigue. It's all psychological. Now we know it's both. And, and that's really important. I mean, that's a major stride forward. And, and the symptoms of TBI and PTSD kind of overlap to a certain degree. But once again, even with TBI, the numbers are really pretty small. And the vast majority are coming home stronger from the incident. And we're getting better and better at treating, diagnosing and treating TBI. So just uh, recognize the fact that science moves on and a magnificent group of warriors. Let let me kind of give your listeners an overview of how the body and mind responds to stress. And you know, when uh, when I present, I hold up a picture of a a cop coming down for the World Trade Center, 9-11. His name is Christopher Amoroso. And you just Google uh, Officer Christopher Amoroso and and go to Google Images. And you see one of the most amazing images. There's him carrying this pregnant woman down for the World Trade Center. And his face is bone white. He's taken a blow to the left cheekbone. On the other side of the head, you, you can't see it, but there was a pretty bad cut. He's been burned on a second trip down for the World Trade Center. His face is bone white. And the, the lady's face is beet red. And what I tell people is, you, you know, their heart rate could be exactly the same. The impact on their body is exactly the opposite. Because uh, uh, he's experiencing vasoconstriction. His body shut down the blood flow to the outer layer of the body in order to, uh, to prevent uh, loss of blood. And, you know, as long as you don't hit an artery, as long as you don't puncture the body core, uh, while vasoconstriction is doing its thing, you can suck up an awful lot of trauma and not lose hydraulics, you know, not bleed out in the heat of battle. But the thing to understand is when we talk about these physiological impacts of combat, do, doing a hard, vigorous run and getting your heart rate up is, is only a tiny you know, a, a part of the way representation of what it feels like when somebody's trying to kill you. The physiological arousal of a, of a, of a life and death event is different than any other physiological arousal. One causes vasodilation. We've all seen that. The blood vessels are wide open. Your your face is flushed. You're gasping for air, and your body's pumping noxious where it needs to go. The vasoconstriction is a totally different story. So, in, in when the body goes in this vasoconstriction mode, some very fascinating and amazing things are happening. And these are right out of my book on combat. If anybody's going to read any book, I recommend on combat. Which, incidentally. <laughs> We're, we're the publishers for on combat and we just had a bad print run and we got to send a couple thousand back. So right now there's almost none available on Amazon, but be patient. Right now we've already got people starting to sell them used copies at outrageous prices. Just give it another month and there'll be copies. But what we tell people is when you're in this life and death event, uh, the, the idea of diminished sounds, you know, hunters know that you don't usually hear the shots in combat and, or in, in hunting, you, you shoot a deer, you know, there's a, you know, a noise that would make your ear ring on the range. You don't hear it. Now, hunters, you are still getting hearing losses, shutouts in the in the nerve. The, the ear's still getting hammered. Wear hearing protection when you hunt. But a lot of people are familiar with this diminished sound in combat. And then tunnel vision. People talk about looking through a toilet paper tube. You know, I train my cops. I tell them, you know, it's a pretty good bet. Whoever you're facing a life and death events in tunnel vision. 
And a sidestep can take you right off their radar screen. Every draw should have a sidestep built into it. Uh, and then autopilot. And then, uh, and then slow motion time. It blows people's minds. I've had hundreds of people tell me they can see the bullet in combat, and I believe them. On several cases, they were able to walk on the point where the bullet hit. No way they could have done it if they weren't tracked with their, with their eyes like they said they were. Then half of all trained season cops have memory gaps, blackouts. Uh, you know, 2016 was the single worst year-over-year increase in cops murdered in the history of our nation. Five dead cops in Dallas, four dead cops in Baton Rouge, onesies and twosies across America. Every year we have better technology, better training, better tactics. The number, the number of dead cops underrepresents the problem. The best measure is the year-over-year increase. And not only do we have our cops murdered by the you know five here and four there and onesies and twosies across America, we have bad guys come to the cops' house to murder their family. But Mama Bear protecting the cubs can be one of the most dangerous things on the planet. And Mama Bear killed the bad guy, game over. And she told me, she told me, she said, I was messed up. And she said, you know what was eating me alive? She said, I heard the audio recording of my 911 call. And to this day, I have no memory of making that call. I heard my voice and I have no memory of making that call. She said, then somebody showed me your book. I said, look, it's normal. You and I know the word normalize one of the most healing tools in the planet, normalizing. That's normal. And, and that's where on killing and on combat has been so valuable to people. So, you know, the, the memory gaps and then memory distortions. One out of five just Latin remembers something that did not happen. It was early in the war. One of our tier one spec ops medics uh, uh, came up to me after the first combat tour. He said, why did the wounded hallucinate so much? Why do they remember things that didn't happen? So if you were just sitting here right now, and boom, give me yourself, autopilot, blackouts, hallucinations, that would meet every definition of a psychotic episode. Just those things by themselves would scare the daylights out of you. The fact that somebody's trying to kill you is bad enough without your body doing weird and one of the things nobody warned you about. But if you've been warned that might happen, then they won't blindside you. Young uh, California Highway Patrol officer, uh, uh, he'd been in my class, he'd been forewarned. Uh, traffic stop, uh, a criminal uh, murdered his partner, he kills a criminal, applies CPR on his dead partner. Don't get a whole lot more traumatic than that. He said, Dave, you cannot imagine how important it was in the heat of the battle to know that it was normal for my shots to be so muted. He said, tunnel vision like looking through a soda straw. He says, slow motion time is weird and autopilot, holstering and unholstering without conscious thought. He said, during the debriefing, and those debriefings are important for a lot of reasons. He said, during the debriefing, people talk about things I didn't remember. And I was okay with that. And he said, there were one or two things that I remembered. Everybody else said, no, man, that didn't happen. He said, if I didn't know those kind of memories, distortions could happen, I would have spent the rest of my life thinking they all conspired to lie to me about some goofy little aspect of what happened. So it's so important about this. And, and those memories, um, they they have impact, too. I actually have an experience with this. Uh, so we were conducting security escort patrols, um, and uh, we were going through a checkpoint. He was under fire. One of the vehicles was disabled, and I had to dismount. And I told my dismount, get out the vehicle, pop smoke. And, and as soon as he came out, it was a... a, a armor security vehicle. So we popped the door. And as soon as he popped the door, two rounds basically hit within inches of his head. Um, 
and and he you know he's like hey you know it's hot on this side what have you to this day we were literally feet apart we remember that differently i remember it as me ordering him to dismount and he's saying no and i almost killed him he remembers it as he was dismounting against my orders and i saved his life when i told him to get back in Isn't and, that and you're right. I mean, and this is the, and, and, and what that is, and, and had we not, and again, through, through, yeah. um, you know, my studies and things like that, I could have, and I, and, and I honestly did live with a lot of guilt that I almost got my guy killed by the heat of the moment and telling him to dismount on the hot side and all these other things. Um, that because I was trying to get the mission done, I almost got this guy killed. And, and, and those distorted memories can create guilt, which is separate, totally separate from PTSD. Yes. Um, and different issues to address. Oh, now, you know, I mentioned the debriefing in there. Uh, I'm going to be in Baltimore just this next Saturday, uh, uh, Saturday after next, doing uh, the Critical Incident Stress Management uh, Conference. I had the honor to be there most years. And one of the things we're doing is, you know, everybody sits and talks about what happened. And, uh, and it's the debriefing. And, and, you know, pain shared is pain divided. Joy shared is joy multiplied. We do that in funerals. We we sort out the memory distortions. We, we figure out the memory gaps. Uh, and, uh, and there's a lot of good things happening during that debriefing. But we're adding another step. Everybody puts a bottle of water in front of them. And if anybody becomes emotional, stop, take a big swig of water. And, and you know, what, what we talk about, we talk about, uh, about fight or flight on one end and rest and digest on the other end. Sympathetic and parasympathetic dynamics. And when you're in combat, you go to this fight or flight uh, a dynamic of, of a, a total, total sympathetic nervous system arousal and parasympathetic processes like digestion get shut down. You know? And then uh, uh, how do we take some of this up there, bring it back down? In a nutshell, PTSD is every time you remember it, you relive it. You talk about it and you go on that roller coaster ride again. Your heart rate goes up, your, your blood pressure goes up, you start perspiring. What we want to do, the path to healing, is to remember it without reliving it. How do, how do we stop that physiological arousal? And for decades, I used breathing. I interviewed World War II vets and Vietnam vets starting in 1988, and they started becoming emotional and make them stop and breathe. Today, we put a bottle of water in front of them. And taking a swig of water is a natural way to get people to breathe. But it also it, it sends, sends a body a powerful rest and digest message. We're safe. We have time for a drink of water. And so that, that dynamic, I, I, a friend of mine is one of our nation's leading therapists for law enforcement. Uh, and she, she told me, she said, 14 years of practice, six years of college, and that stupid bottle of water is doing more good than they've ever done. But we set them down, we talk about what happened. Every time they start to lose it, take that swig of water. I tell my cops, you know, let's say you get a witness statement from a victim of a crime. If that individual becomes emotional, a, you don't need all that drama, but B, they're moving down the path of mental illness. They're starting to associate the memory with the emotions. So give them a bottle of water, just the power of a gift. Give them a bottle of water. And every time they start to become emotional, they can stop and take a big swig of water. A, you're getting that calm, rational state that you need. B, you send them down the path of mental wellness. You're teaching them from the very beginning to separate the memory from the emotions. A cop sent me an email. He said, Dave, he said, I, I'm in a high-speed pursuit. I key the mic, and I hear Mickey Mouse come over the radio. He said, I knew I had a problem. I tell him, you know, if, if, uh, 
if, if you can hear the stress in your voice, if you can't control your voice, you can't control your hands. And uh, and and, uh, and 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 so he said, uh, I, I remember what you said. And I, I had a bottle of water, took big swart water, key the mic, <clears throat> fighter pilot comes over radio from that point on. So just to take that a step further, the uh, the Air Force brought me out to Alaska to train the Air Force Pararescue Squadron in Alaska. And my host up there is is an is a um, an Air Force PJ Pararescue uh, Master Sergeant, veteran of many combat tours. And he told me his wife was a uh, emergency room psychiatrist. And she told him that if a new thing to sweeping across this, uh, the nation, if you have a meth head or a crackhead uh, uh, in the ER tearing up the, the emergency room, you grab a bag of M&Ms, you rip it over, you shove it in his face, which is like some M&Ms, completely diffuse the situation. He said, I'm your typical cynical guy. I said, yeah, yeah, sure. He said, yeah. This kind of guy carries a gun off duty, kind of guy you want to. Uh, and he said two different times, I thought I was going to have to draw my gun and fight for our lives. Both times, while Reichridge is in her purse, pulls out a bag of M&Ms, rips it open, shoves the guy's face, which is like some M&Ms, and completely defused the situation. He said, now, it's, it's one thing when a pretty girl does it. <laughs> he said, I'm still not so sure for me. It's good to have plan B back here. But the power of food to put people in rest and digest. I've got two other examples make this come alive. Now, we're, we're pushing the outer edge of these dynamics of, you know, food and breathing and a swig of water. And uh, I, I train cops by the thousands and thousands every year in all 50 states. And a couple months back, a cop came up to me. He brought his partner with him because his partner needed to vouch for the story. It's such a wild story. He brought his partner to vouch for the story. They had a naked guy in the front yard. Now, naked guys, there's something wrong there. And usually what you're looking at is, uh, is, uh, is, is excited delirium. Their body goes into overdrive. Their, their temperature goes up. The reason why they're naked is because they're hot. They take their clothes off. They think the old berserkers might have been tapping into that. And, and some, uh, some illegal drugs can kind of put you in that state with, if, if you're predisposed. So these people are capable of great feats of strength and they're irrational and they're screaming. If, if I tell my cops, you have a naked guy die on you, you get a body temperature right now. And if his body temp is high, his living proves something happened and you didn't do it. So was it excited to learn? We don't know that parents in the front porch said, don't shoot our kid, don't shoot our kid. He's in the front yard naked and throwing and screaming things. And the cop, the cop said, I had a Snickers bar in my hand. I thought, what the heck? I thought, hey, buddy, you want a Snickers bar? The guy said, what? Do you want a Snickers bar? Huh? Looks like a Snickers bar. Yeah. Follow me up to your room. Follow me up to your room. I'll give you a Snickers bar. Walked up to his room, gave a Snickers bar. Was it excited delivery? And would it work again? We don't know. It's one of those what he got to lose kind of things, like that that bag of M&Ms in the purse. But just thinking about food uh, uh, may have potential. I just heard about one. And not, again, this this great uh, mental health professional, a uh, personal hero of mine working with uh, with law enforcement, she now keeps a little fridge of ice cream. And, and so what's your favorite flavor of ice cream? Whatever it is, she's got it. Just the, the little the little cups, hands of ice cream and a spoon. Even if oh, I don't want anything. Oh, you gotta do it. Just one bite, one bite of your favorite. And once they take that first bite, first they're they're putting nutrition in their body, they're they're putting themselves in a more predisposed state. I thought this is awesome. So we're pushing the envelope on these kind of things. And, uh, and, and the debriefings are terribly important. Just remember, critical concept for your audience, that the path to healing is separate the memory from the emotions. 
Uh, I teach the breathing everywhere. I've got case studies in my files by the hundreds and hundreds organized by topic. And of all the topics, the breathing has saved the most lives, had the most impact. You don't always have a bottle of water. You don't always have a bag of M&Ms, but you can always stop and take a deep breath. And then we expand on that with that bottle of water during the debriefing. And from the very beginning, we separate the memory from the emotions. But you expect crazy things in the heat of battle. It's that re-experience in the event. Things that happen afterwards that scare the daylights out of you. And the thing to understand, this is not PTSD. It can become PTSD to know how you deal with it. What I tell people is when you re-experience that event, your heart's pounding, whatever it may be, all that's happening is neurons are firing. You don't want them to. You ever have neurons firing? That's where muscle cramps are. You ever get muscle cramps? Now imagine you'd never had muscle cramps. You'd never heard of muscle cramps. All of a sudden, your leg cramps up. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. What is this? It hurts. I'm going to die. No, man, it's muscle cramps. Work them out. Eat more bananas. Get out of here. But if, if you've never been warned, that might happen. And nobody nobody taught you what to do. It, it'd be terrifying. Neurons are firm when you don't want them to. Well, I talk about re-experience of the event. I, I talk about the, the human brain and the dog brain. And, and that, that puppy comes for a visit. You know, during the traumatic event, you blew a hole through the screen door. A, a powerful neural pathway was established. Uh, you know, a week later, a gunshot goes off and your daughter's swim meet. You know, the starter's gun goes off. Your heart is pounding and the puppy's coming through that, that hole in the screen door, peeing in your lap. And, uh, and says, gunfight, gunfight, where's the gunfight? So to, to be warned that, this, that, that you can re-experience of this event uh, is, is terribly important. But, you know, it's like, Muscle cramps. And usually you know what set up the muscle cramps. And usually you know what suddenly makes you re-experience the event, a smell, a sound. But sometimes those cramps come for no reason to identify. And sometimes that puppy, that re-experience the event can come for no reason. And that's okay, too. And all of us have probably woken up in the night with muscle cramps. It's, it's nothing to panic about. It's no fun. And sometimes you wake up in the night with your heart pounding. Nothing to panic about. Now, if you woke up with muscle cramps every night for a month, you go to the doc, and the doc can help. If you wake up with your heart pounding every night for a month, the doc can help. You know, no pity party, no macho man. You know, have confidence in your ability to, to work through this thing, but don't hesitate to get help if you need it and believe the help can help. And so we teach the breathing exercise or the swig of water. And now we've got people using the M&Ms with excited delirium. Will it work again? I'll give it a try. You know, that Snickers bar. Yeah, what do you got to lose? And the mental health professionals who are, who are saying, what's your favorite flavor of ice cream? It just so happens I have one of those. I don't take a bite. Take just one bite. And all of a sudden, the world changes. And we get into that. We go from fight or flight into rest and digest. And that's a good place to be if we want to heal. Yeah, that is exactly something that I um, work with veterans. There's a, uh, and you're likely familiar with this, and, and even some of the client or some of the listeners is uh, dialectical behavior therapy, and it works very well with veterans because it's it's sort of no brainer, right? There's this uh, uh, steps that you take, uh, but one of the aspects is how do we deliberately engage our parasympathetic nervous system when we're excited, um, and it's the idea of changing the body chemistry. Cold water on your face makes you then take a deep breath. Um, I actually had a veteran one time who was in a, he and his wife were preparing for Thanksgiving. He was in an agitated state because there was going to be some unknown people coming over. Um, and we're here in Colorado. And so he, uh, 
and he's like, I, I was mad, so I decided to go outside and shovel the sidewalk. And he shoveled, shoveled his driveway, his neighbor's driveway, sidewalks, two or three houses up. And after like an hour, he came back in. He said, we had a, a great conversation. So because you engaged in physical exercise, wore yourself out, got that cold in you, and now you're able to actually, like you said, separate the emotion from what your the cognitions and the emotions are separate. Um, and, and so it's not about removing the memory and this idea of cue based memories are going to happen all the time. You're going to continue to have that noise. The train goes by or the, the dogs or, or something like that. The cue based memory is going to happen, but our physiological reactions, the emotional reactions, they don't have to continue to happen. We can separate, like you said, that emotion from the memory. And it's important for the listeners here. The Q is C U E as opposed to the letter Q. Right. There's some, some something that cues us, like an actor. This is your cue, you know, and that that gunshot goes off when you're unexpected. That's the cue that 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 suddenly creates this uh, this memory. And so you you you, you know you, you you can't get rid of the memory. You, you don't want to get rid of the memory. But what you can do is separate the memory from the emotions. And and I, I got a couple of case studies that you, your audience might find interesting. You know the the first case study is somebody you know this this re-experience in the event. The puppy comes for a visit. And nobody warned him. You know, uh, he, he'd been in a cop in a gunfight, bad guys down, happening in the story. A week later, I was in a, a swim meet with his wife, uh, watching their daughter, and a starter's gun goes off, and boom, his heart is pounding, he's gasping for hours, drenched with sweat. His wife thinks he's having a heart attack. It's what you and I would make call a panic attack, a little milder anxiety attack, basically the same thing. You know, he's re-experiencing the event. The puppy's coming for a visit. That's the cue that makes him remember the event. You can't forget the event, but you can separate the event from the emotions. But nobody warned him. But, you know, I, I uh, had the honor to train uh, uh, an awful lot of our troops going back and forth from the war. And uh, one uh, young Marine gave me a great, great feedback loop. Uh, he said, you know, you trained us. We went to Iraq, saw a lot of combat. We came home. And we're sitting around, somebody's mind sitting around over beer, talking about the puppy comfort visit, re-experiencing the event. And, uh, and, and, uh, and we talk about it and then we laugh and take a swig of beer and regain control and keep going. Now, talking over beer can be pretty healthy. Whiskey's made for sipping, wine's made for sipping, beer is made for gulping. And you're talking over beer and you start to lose it, what do you do? Stop, take a big swig of beer, maybe a belch, regain control, keep talking. Physiologically, psychologically speaking, just about one of the best things you can do and to get drunk, then it gets counterproductive. Yeah, so, uh, so, uh, uh, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, he says, uh, we're talking over beer, and, and one of my buddies talked about it. He says, I've been home less than a week. Oh, dark third in the morning. Dead asleep in bed with my wife. And, the, and the, they emptied the dumpster right outside our apartment with a big hollow boom. It sounds like incoming artillery. My heart's pounding. I roll out of bed. I hit the deck. I'm scrambling under the bed for a rifle helmet that's not there. And I come up armed with my slippers, you know. And, and we laugh and we have a swig of beer. And one of my buddies said, I have me. Another real common one. He said, uh, I've been home for a couple of weeks, walking on a busy city sidewalk with a wife and kids. Heavy traffic in the street, cars parked by the curb. I'm by the curb, wife and kids. Something backfires loud. No warning. Boom. Next thing I know, I'm in the gutter under a car. I look up, there's the wife and kids. It's, ah, <laughs> it's okay. This is normal. <laughs> We're warned this might happen. We laugh, we had a sweet beer. And he said, one of my buddies said something really important. He said, you know, if we hadn't been warned this might happen, we wouldn't be laughing. If we hadn't been warned this might happen, 
we wouldn't be laughing. Laughter can be cruel and laughter can be inappropriate. But most of the time, laughter is very healthy. It says this has no power over me. And, 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 it, and it's so, so to be able to, to say this has no power over me. And so being forewarned and forearmed is part of it. And then knowing what to do about it. And, uh, you know, having those those things that allow you to separate the memory from the emotions. And uh, and then the final topic uh, we'll get around to when is uh, is uh, survivor guilt. I'd like to talk about that in a minute. But uh, is this all meshing in with what you know and what you've been doing? Yeah, absolutely. And, and even the idea of, um, you know, reacting to in, in preparing. So we train um, we train for combat. We train, you know, to we go to the range. We, we train our, our warrior tasks and drills, uh, but we don't train necessarily. What you're talking about is how to deal with that aftermath. Um, and, and you said that, you know, they were laughing about it, but had they not been warned, they wouldn't even have been talking about it. It would have been this shameful secret that they they would have kept in, in, in this idea. They still would have been sitting around drinking, but they would each be holding their secret shame of this puppy coming to visit and, and yeah. wouldn't have had the ability to know that the guy next to him is experiencing exactly the same thing. Yeah. You know, that I, I said in the book, you're only as sick as your secrets, you know, that, that thing you can't talk about. Of course, one of the things, one out of five of the veterans of intense combat in world war two would admit that they messed themselves in one time or another, uh, about, about, uh, 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 about half of all veterans of intense combat in World War II would admit they wet themselves at one time or another. Now, one out of five minutes they wet them or messed themselves, and one old World War II vet told me, "Hell, all that proves you know twenty percent admit they messed themselves. The other eighty percent were liars because <laughs> because that happened to him." Uh, I was with some Canadian troops just recently, and they'd been on a couple of major deployments, working with the locals, eating local food. And there was another wild card in the equation, which was diarrhea, you know, food caused. And they talked about that, you know, the five of them sitting around and four of them talked about, you know, losing it before they could get to the toilet and messing themselves. And they, this is food based. But the fifth one is like, they're all crazy to be talking about that. This is this is terrible. This is shameful. We've messed ourselves. <laughs> hey, welcome to the hard world out here. You know, this, this is the world we live in. And sometimes you just can't make it in time. And, and so we, we take a Price yeah, of admission. David, that's it. And we take these shameful secrets and we realize that these are normal. And again, we can normalize these things. You're only sick as your secrets. And you all realize that suddenly that which we've, we've, we've lived in shame of is actually normal. It's it, it extraordinarily common. Right. And I think that that really ties into what you were talking about, this idea of survivor's guilt. And we touched on it a little bit earlier, um, this construct that, that really emerged um, in the 80s and, and in the last 10 or 15 years. But the concept of moral injury being separate from uh, from PTSD and, and the way I explain it is, um, you know, you don't get PTSD or you don't get uh, survivor's guilt from PTSD. That's more moral injury. I should not have lost my friend. I should have done something. I should have been there. Something I believe to be right in the world was violated either by my actions or someone else's. Um, and, and that develops into survivor's guilt. That's less biological than it is psychological. Amen. Amen. And, and you know what I tell people too, another angle on that is survivor's guilt is not PTSD. It's grieving. It's loss. It's hard, but it's normal. In most normal lives, we will all bury our parents. Anything more normal, parents that die before they're adults. It, it, it's normal. 
but it's hard. In most people's lives, one of the hardest things you'll ever do is to bury your parents. Does that destroy us? I, I, I think we're a little bit wiser people who understand how precious every minute with every life can be once we've lost our parents. Would our parents want that to destroy us? No. And, and so, you know, when we lose, is there anything more normal when we go in harm's way? And so our comrades would lay down their life. It's normal, but it's hard. And, and I, I ask people, you know, if you were the one to die, if you were the one to die and your loved ones and comrades were driving on, what would you want for them after you're gone? Well, yeah, you want them to have the fullest, richest, best life they can have. That's what you lived and fought and died to give them. Now, now they're the one that died and you're driving on. What do they want from you? The same thing. The fullest, richest, best life we can have. And that means right now. We dedicate ourselves to every, every day that was bought at such a precious price. If I give my life to save your life, don't you dare waste it. And, and you know, and, and, and what that comes down to is uh, right now, confront the possibility of suicide, chew it up and spit it out. People say suicide. Uh, Colonel, where, where, where's that coming from? I, I never eat my gun. Well, among our cops and among our troops, we lose more to their own hand than we do to criminals or the enemy. And every one of them would have said they'd never eat their gun. You know, the world came unglued. They made a bad decision. Every chance to rethink it. But I, I asked everybody, I said, can we all agree on one thing? I think every living creature can agree on one thing. Nobody takes my life without a fight. Every living creature. Give me a see ahead nods on that one. Everybody could read. Nobody takes your life, including you, without a fight. Tell yourself right now, I will fight for my life. I will seek counseling. I will get medication. I will leave no rock unturned. I will fight for my life like would fight for my child's life. And nobody takes my life, including me, without a fight. You burn that into your soul. But there's another kind of a final angle on the whole suicide and aftermath dynamics that I've been spending a lot of time on. And, and, and I think it's pretty important. Is One of the greatest predictors of suicide is sleep deprivation. Sleep deprivation is an epidemic across our entire civilization. And one of its major manifestations is an explosion of suicides. Suicides across our civilization and teen suicides, now what they call tween suicides, teenagers. Teenage girls, 10, 11, 12-year-old girls, the suicide rate has tripled in just the last decade per capita. And, uh, and we always knew that alcohol and suicide was related. Uh, alcohol creates impaired judgment. You make a bad decision. You know, making the decision to take your life is not something that a normal person would do. Not rational. Yeah. You, you, you've got to impair your rationality to, in, in most cases, to be able to do this. But the most pervasive form of impaired judgment is sleep deprivation. After 18 hours without sleep, your impaired judgment equal to 0.08 legally drunk. After 24 hours without sleep, your impaired judgment equal to 0.10 above legally drunk. After two nights without sleep, you are psychotic. Any graduate of Army Ranger School will tell you about hallucinations on the third day without sleep. And we are in the middle of this epidemic of sleep deprivation. And, you know, Russia, when the, when the communists were running the Soviet Union, they have one of the highest suicide rates on the planet. And they led the world in bringing suicide down by strictly rationing alcohol. They brought suicide rate way down. Well, communists collapsed, free enterprise, alcohol for everybody. 
The new Russia has a horrendous suicide rate. The last two years, Russia has led the world to bring down suicide. How they do it? Strictly rationing and limiting alcohol. And so the link between alcohol and suicide is just so powerful. But the thing to remember is the link between sleep deprivation and suicide is even more powerful. And, and we do have people who go three days without sleep. We got these incredibly addictive video games. There's nothing wrong with adults playing video games unless it gets away of your sleep or your family or your job. And these things are, are intended to be addictive. They're digital crack. Right now, 200 million people are online playing Fortnite. We do this in 0.05, say, ah, quit time, save the game and quit, so they never do that again. We do this and nobody quits, so they do more of that. It's a constant interactive feedback loop to make just the right plot, just the right color pattern, just the right, just the right flicker rate, just the right dynamics to make that video game impossible to turn off. Or even like Fortnite, when you're done, you got to roll, like, like we all know Tetris, you got to roll right into the next one. And, uh, and, and the video games put you in a flow state. You become incapable of keeping track of time. Suddenly it's three o'clock in the morning, got no idea where the last six hours went. You'd stagger into work sleep deprived and your spouse is ready to give up on you. Recent research tells us video games are responsible for 15% of all divorces in America. Uh, Google it. The video game divorce come right up. And actually, in the younger age, it's quite a bit higher. In all that many 62-year-olds getting divorces over video games. And the video games create an illusion of control, an illusion of progress. And there's nothing wrong with them unless they get in the way of your life. And then you got to confront it and say, I, I got to get these things under control. And nobody ever told them that. And then the social media and kind of a case that had wrapped this up. Uh, a cop told me one time, and, and I tell people, here's parenting 101 for the 21st century. When you send your kid to bed at night, take their cell phone away from them. No cell phone in the room, no laptop in the room. They have got to go to the room and sleep. And, uh, and the two major killers of our kids is uh, suicide and traffic deaths. And sleep deprivation is a key factor in both. And the third major killer of our kids is impaired is is uh, is drug overdoses. Just taking drugs is impaired judgment right there. So you know what? I, I, a cop told me he said I, he said I had a good girl. She was an A student. She said, Dad, it's embarrassing. You don't have to take my cell phone at night. You can trust me. He said, so I trusted her. Let her keep her cell phone. And a little while later, she took her life. He said, I never knew the hell my little girl was living in until we looked at the text messages on her cell phone. Night after night of ceaseless, relentless, vicious bullying. And you can't ignore that. When you know what's happening, you can't just ignore it. She's up all night long trying to defend herself, trying to find somebody to stand up for herself. He said, my little girl was bullied to death in front of my eyes, and I let it happen. The one thing on earth I could have done for her would take her cell phone every night, let her turn off the bed. He, he says, I can't ignore that text message in the middle of the night. How do we expect our kids to? And one last tie-in on this whole sleep deprivation. We have a worldwide epidemic of, uh, of, uh, of opiate abuse. Now, at least the prescription opiates have always been there. You've got to ask yourself, what is the new factor? What is happening worldwide? And sleep deprivation creates chronic pain. And especially caffeine abuse creates chronic pain. Caffeine doesn't make you not sleep. Caffeine makes you have bad quality sleep. And so you don't get that deep cycle sleep when the muscles and tendons relax. So lack of sleep creates chronic 
pain and, and primarily lack of deep cycle sleep creates chronic pain. You never hit that deep cycle sleep when the tendons and muscles relax. Doc, I heard all the time, give me a pill to fix it. You don't need a pill. A, you need more sleep. And B, you need to cut off the stinking caffeine after lunch. Because that caffeine after lunch is making you have bad quality sleep. You're not getting that deep cycle sleep. And that's why you're, you're aching all the time. Caffeine's an amazing, powerful, useful drug. But we've got these mega doses of caffeine that we're pounding down. Yeah, and, and the half-life of caffeine in our body is five hours. That means the caffeine you took at 5 p.m. is at half strength when you go to bed at 10 p.m. And it's making us have bad quality sleep. We're not getting that deep cycle sleep. And that is a critical factor of chronic pain. It is also a key factor with Alzheimer's. Just a study two months ago, major study, lack of deep cycle sleep is one of the major predictors of Alzheimer's. During deep cycle sleep is when the body flushes all the garbage out of the brain. And, and if the garbage never flushed out of the brain, bad things happen. So I, I tell people, and one thing I recommend all your listeners, get a Fitbit. I think the Fitbit Charge 3 is doing the best job. Track your sleep. It will rock your world. Track your deep cycle sleep and realize how precious that is. And look at the correlation between lack of deep cycle sleep and chronic pain and lack of sleep and chronic pain. Uh, you know, the whole opiate epidemic. What's the new factor? What is it that's across our civilization? Uh, and it's this sleep deprivation created by the the text messages, people with text messages in the middle of the night without a darn good reason are not your friends. <laughs> and they should be blocked right now. You let them know. This is your last warning. You ever text me in the middle of the night again without a darn good reason? You are going to be blocked. Yeah, you have no right to interrupt my sleep in the middle of the night just because you're not sleeping. And, uh, and, uh, and so this sleep management is the critical area where we can make a difference with our veterans in healing and stopping the chronic pain and having a, a fulfilling life. And these addictive video games, the text messaging, the cell phones, the mega doses of caffeine are eating us alive. And these are all things we can control right now. Uh, and these are things we can control. And they're and they're not necessarily one would expect in the realm of a therapist, right? It's not a it's not a therapeutic intervention. And this goes back to the whole health aspect of what we do with our bodies, what we put in our bodies, um, impacts our mental wellness, and our mental wellness impacts what we put in. There is this circular cycle, uh, Dave. I think that I could probably listen to you all afternoon, and 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 many people do. I really appreciate you taking the time uh, to to share this much time with our audience. Real quick, if people wanted to find out what you're doing, we didn't even get into Killology. How can they find what you're doing and, and sort of connect with you to, to find out some more? Thanks, Dwayne. Uh, you know, it starts with my book, On Killing and On Combat, The New One Assassination Generation, a couple others out there. we got kids' books. The Sheepdog Kids book is really rocking people. Uh, we just had a brand new book come out January 1st called Bulletproof Marriage, a 90-day devotional for sheepdogs and spouse. But the primary source should be on my website, killology.com, K-I-L-L-O-L-O-G-Y.com, the scholarly study of killing. And uh, it's got my my uh, my speaking schedule on there. And we do a lot. We're doing Saturday sheepdog uh, training. It started off as Saturday House of Worship security team training. And it's become much more than that. And we're really, we're really, you know, about one or two Saturdays a month, we're somewhere and, and it's, it's a great day. And I've got a chance to really give some good warrior dynamics in there, a little bit of a spiritual insight to it, which is also, if you're if you're focused that way, can be can be useful. 
And uh, and so Kilalti.com, look at the calendar, see what works out for you and y'all and, and all of your magnificent listeners out there and all of your great sheepdogs out there and your sheepdog healers out there. Uh, it's a great honor to be on board with you, and Dwayne, it's, it's, it's one of the great honors to be here with uh, with your magnificent team. Well done, sir. Welcome home, soldier. Welcome home. <laughs> I appreciate that. You're listening to Headspace and Timing, where we're trying to change the way that we think and talk about veteran mental health. It was great for me to be able to talk to Lieutenant Colonel Grossman. I had read his books on killing and on combat during my two deployments to Afghanistan long before I became a clinical mental health counselor. And I recommend them to other mental health professionals who are looking to work with veterans. They're also eye-opening for veterans and their families as they explain a good deal about why we do what we do and why we think the way we think. Thanks for taking the time to listen. If you want to find the show notes for this episode, go to VeteranMentalHealth.com forward slash HST139. Just a reminder that the guests and information on this show are for informational purposes only and not meant to be considered professional advice. While I am a therapist, I'm not your therapist. I'd like to thank Doc Todd for giving us permission to use his track Not Alone from his album Combat Medicine. Doc's trying to bring the discussion about veteran mental health out of the darkness, and you can see all of his work at therealdoctod.com. Make sure to join us for the next episode. Hit subscribe on your podcast player of choice so you don't miss it. Until next time, remember, veterans, you're not alone. Ever. The struggle is real, found a feast and lost a soul Eventually my drinking, it got out of control There in darkness I roam, struggling to find home See suddenly death didn't feel so alone 22 a day, destination unknown It could have been avoided if you picked up the phone But now you're gone, so I guess all we get is the tone Nothing but bone weeds, overgrown, pushing up stones I've triumphed over enemies, co-creating enemies Broke out facilities that tried to put an end to me R.I.P., I'd rather grind in tranquility Authentic Tennessee, embrace my ability Stand up.
It's time to stand back up. All my veterans, man, Army, Marine Corps, Navy, Air Force, Coast Guard. Get up, you know. Are you looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to VeteranMentalHealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes.